0: Thank you, Stu. Well, good morning, everyone. It is a great joy to see everybody here today. Uh, We're going to continue on in our look at the book of 2 Corinthians. We are in chapter 7. We began in that passage last week, and I would invite you to turn there once again. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And Once again, I will read uh, pretty much the entire chapter. I'm going to start at verse 2. That really is the beginning of this uh, uh, section here, and I'll read down through the end of the chapter. As you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy and infallible word. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us, Paul says. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also... What eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness to us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because His spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice, because I have complete confidence in you. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his precious and holy word, Please be seated. Well, last week we began taking a look at this passage, which deals with Paul's, in a sense, a a follow-up with them after noting the grief that uh, some of his letters have caused to them because of this whole disciplinary situation that existed because of the sin that was there in that church, sin that was unrepented of, certainly for a while, and that was even rejoiced in, and, and flaunted as evidence of their greater spirituality, if you can imagine that. That was even going on there, and Paul put the kibosh on it. Um, but they didn't necessarily respond very well right at first to that, and the relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church was significantly damaged. A church that he had started, a church that he loved dearly, that they had had a wonderful Uh, start to to their relationship, and yet because he had had to correct them because of their sin, they were not wanting to hear it at first, and so there was a rift that came into that relationship. And Paul now, in this last letter, this, uh, what we call the second uh, Corinthian letter, uh, even though it's third or even fourth, depending on how you count, nonetheless, uh, it's the second one that we have, and here he is rejoicing at the renewal of this relationship and how it has been restored and repaired. And here he's describing how that came about. And as you'll remember, if you were here last week, and if you weren't, I'll review just a little bit, but uh, we looked at this restoration of relationship, not just sort of coming about out of the blue because everybody suddenly said, oh, well, those issues didn't matter. That hurt didn't matter. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, It uh, it doesn't matter about the the sin or the problem or anything else. Uh, We're 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 all good now, which is kind of the way the world often approaches challenges between people, right? It's like, oh, I'll just forget it. Never mind. And yet, while we say that, oftentimes what remains is a festering sore of bitterness in our hearts against others in the relationship never truly gets dealt with and never truly gets repaired. And I don't think anybody here wants to live that way, do you? Can you think of relationships that are damaged because of things either that someone has done to you or you have done to somebody else? Wouldn't you like to have those uh, repaired beyond just, well, never mind, it's okay? Wouldn't you rather have a full and complete restoration? Well, Paul describes how that came about with the Corinthian church. And it, and it was we noted from verses two through seven, and then twelve through sixteen, the beginning and ending sections of this. He speaks about the context of this relationships being repaired as really, even though he doesn't use the word discipline, everything that he's talking about is in relationship to his confrontation of them, either personally, face to face, or by letter, of their sin to strive to correct a problem. And so the the context here is faithful discipline, and you can see uh, in the notes I provided there for you uh, what we covered last week in the italic print. We noted the the, how this discipline is to be brought about and what is to characterize it. It's not just going in uh, with a baseball bat and bashing people over the head, so to speak, until they come to their senses. Um, by the way, have you ever noticed anybody that got hit in the head that was thinking thinking right after that? No, probably not. But unfortunately, sometimes, uh, even in the church, discipline is carried out that way. Um, how's that old saying goes? Uh, the beatings will continue until morale improves. And sometimes, unfortunately, uh, even in the church, discipline has that sort of feel to it, but that's not what Paul, how Paul describes it at all, is it? Just edifying, uh, helpful, empathetic, um, being looking with satisfaction on on the progress that those with whom we are dealing uh, are making, uh, comforted, being comforted by that, and and having a willingness, of, you know, to. Essentially, it's discipline without suspicion. Without, if, without the expectation that th- somebody's going to fail. You know what? They might fail. Right? I won't say probably, but I'll just leave it at might. Through the process, they may say they, 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 mean, they may mean well, they may say good things and all of that, but they still may mess up. Okay, does that mean you write them off? For some, that's what it is. It's a write-off. Well, we gave you your shot. I was expecting you to fail anyway, because we know what kind of person you are. And all too often, discipline is done that way. Paul did not do that with them, and you even see that here in the sec, in this letter to second, this second letter to the Corinthians. We, we noted, we've noted before that Paul is one, in one passage is talking, singing their praises, and in the next next passage, he's talking about their problems. And then the next passage, he's back to singing their praises again. And we see a lot of that even in this passage here. What does that tell you? That Paul is, you know, confused? Not at all. It tells you that Paul is looking for every opportunity that he can for success and joy and confidence in those with whom he is dealing. Rather than waiting there with his arms folded, waiting for them to mess up again. Whole different attitude, isn't it? You ever worked for a boss that was always looking over your shoulder because he was expecting you to fail? I've, I've worked for bosses like that. one particular one in a plywood mill one time <laughs> was like, could never make that guy happy. Eh, it was not, uh, no, that was not the most pleasant work experience. Needless to say, we didn't go out for you know tea and crumpets after work um, because he, he, and he didn't just do it with me. He just he, that was his approach to leadership, you know, waiting, waiting for everybody to fail so he could pounce on him and make it right. Um, that doesn't uh, build morale very much. Paul's whole approach here in discipline is, by the grace of God, I'm expecting you to succeed because of who God is, not because of who you are, but because of what God can do. And so the, the, Paul found comfort and a and, uh, proper pride in them. Uh, because uh, he saw the, the handiwork of God uh, doing its thing in their hearts and lives. And then uh, being joyful in the midst of it. We don't think of joy and discipline being two words that should be in the same sentence. But if it's done properly, um, there, there is a joy in seeing people come to a right relationship with Christ and to being restored to him as well as being restored to us. And then the sacrifice that evidence what Paul did. A tremendous sacrifice on his part, uh, personally, health-wise, every other way, in order to see them restored. All with the goal of having a confidence in them that was well-founded, to find genuine comfort in the relationship because you're at peace with God. And we noted the nature of that comfort there, and you can see that all laid out there before you. And where that comfort comes from Ultimately, again, not just, for, not just finding comfort and saying, well, it doesn't matter, we'll just go on and put it, under, put it behind us, not think about it again, but a genuine restoration that comes about and comforting that comes about because Christ is involved, God is the one who gives that comfort that, that others come alongside, in this case, Titus, who is bringing testimony to Paul about what he has seen, and it encourages Paul and brings comfort to him. Um, the response of the Corinthians themselves as they genuinely responded to the ministry of the word among them and, and, and showed it consistently, that it was a reality in their life. It wasn't just whitewashing a problem to get Paul off their back, but they actually changed the way that they lived and thought. And, and finding comfort in this relationship that's been restored. And so this is what we talked about last week. Uh, really very very brief uh, overview of this Paul is looking here for comfort instead of distress for confidence instead of suspicion and that is what he's that's how he's conducted himself in this the context of discipline in this situation but this is a two-sided coin the comfort in this relationship even even if uh, Paul even Paul doing all of these things and even if we follow in Paul's steps, and by his example, do the same thing in disciplining uh, others, and by that, whether formal or informal, confronting sin in one way or the other, as we go through that process with others, uh, the damage done to the relationship will still continue, and we will be in a state of perpetual discipline unless something else takes place. And that is addressed in verses 8 through 11 where we see what really the catalyst that, that, that takes what has already begun, the elements of discipline there, and, and in a sense uh, converts that, all that effort into some genuine restoration of relationship, comes about from the other side, from the offending side of this equation, and that's repentance. Now repentance is one of those things that a lot of people talk about Um, I've had, I remember years ago having, it was an independent church, pastor of an independent church back in the Midwest somewhere who tried to convince me and the other guys I was traveling with at the time, um, on a ministry team, he tried to convince us that repentance was, that's just an old Testament thing. You don't need to talk about that anymore. Uh, we don't talk about repentance when, you know, that's, we're all of grace now, so we don't need to repent. Um, which, since repentance is a huge concept, not only in the Old but the New Testament, seemed to be uh, uh, a problem. <laughs> yeah, but uh, he would not be dissuaded no matter how many scriptures we threw at him. But unfortunately, I think that there are many that think that that's the case with uh, repentance. It's just, uh, that's we don't have to worry about that because God just forgives us, so we don't need to worry about You know, repenting. It doesn't even make any sense if you think about it at all. If you're going to take that approach to God, why don't you take that approach to uh, the next time someone offends you? And you want to restore the relationship, and they want to restore the relationship. They want things to get back together. But I'm not really sorry for what I did. How well is that going to go? Think it's going to succeed in restoring relationship? I mean, you can be, all, you can be nice, you can confront, you can do all those things, you can, be, you can make every effort, which a lot of people, I'm not going to get into the whole subject of biblical doctrine of forgiveness because I'll never finish this this morning and I wouldn't finish that either. So it would be entirely unsatisfactory. But nonetheless... Many just think of forgiveness as something as, well, I'm just going to let it go and forget about it and just love you anyway. Well, there is an element of truth to that. But ultimately, for, if you want to just have a ceasefire, okay, but if you want a genuine restoration of relationship, there has to be repentance. And it works that way on the human level, and it definitely works that way on the divine level. And I want you to take a note. I told you last week, I was really excited about getting to this uh, because here we have this perfect, complete picture of what genuine repentance is. And I think it will shock you. Maybe that's too strong a word. Surprise you about what all is involved here. And particularly in the way that Paul lays it out and, and presents it to us. You've got his discussion there begins at verse eight. If I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. That sounds kind of harsh, right? And then he says, well, though I did regret it, he said, I didn't have any delight in making you grieve, except for this, that that grief turned you towards repentance. And in that he rejoiced. So he didn't regret it. Um, we're talking about godly sorrow or godly grief. And what is really involved in that? You know, I, I think all of us know the phrase about, uh, you know, crying crocodile tears. And I've never gotten up close to a crocodile to notice if they're crying or not. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, somebody apparently did and came up with that phrase. The idea that the, it, it's all a sham. It's all... Um, fake. We're all fair, uh, aware of that. We, we were aware of people that can say, Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But in the meantime, they just keep doing the same stuff over and over again without repentance and without really changing anything. And naturally, we look at that with a great deal of suspicion and suspect that it is not genuine. So, Paul is saying, No, part of repentance is a godly sorrow. But notice that there is a sorrow here that can, you can have a sorrow without regret. Sorrow without regret. Now, hang in there with me on verses 8 and 10. I want you to see something. This is really cool. So, I don't regret it, he says, though I did, for I see that the letter grieved you for only a little while. And then verse 10 Godly grief present, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I don't think anyone here enjoys grief. Nobody enjoys sorrow. Certainly, none of us want to. Uh, boy, it's just it's like a it's a thing, right? Nobody wants to end life with full of regret. Right? We want to have. We don't want to have any sorrow that we did something we shouldn't have or didn't do something we should have, right? We want to we finish life with a clean slate. You know, even you know, unbelievers long for that kind of thing, not just Christians. But how can you have sorrow, something that we don't uh, want, and generally attribute a, a negative connotation to, how can you have sorrow... But not regret it. It's really interesting that the words used for grief and sorrow through here, uh, verses eight and ten, it's all the same word in the Greek, Words lupe. Okay, but in this word, it's, if you read it, if we read it this way, even if even if I made you grieve or sorrow, I do not sorrow. Verse ten. Godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without sorrow, whereas worldly sorrow produces death. All the same word. And what the pattern you see is that Godly grief leads to no grief. Worldly grief leads to death, the ultimate grief. How does that happen? That doesn't even seem uh, you know, straight into thinking. How can that happen? I'm going to be sorrowful so that I won't be sorrowful. How does that work? Notice that in verses 8 and 10, we see both parties involved. In verse 8, Paul's referring to his own grief. In other words, he's willing to go through this grief for the sake of getting to the no grief because of the result of the action. And in verse 10, he's speaking about their grief, the Corinthians' grief. And that because they've responded in a godly manner and they've sorrowed for God's sake because of their sins, true restoration can take place and grief can be done away with but a big problem is and this is kind of a these are kind of threshold verses to this actual description of what repentance looks like nobody wants to get past that threshold nobody wants to, to, to hit the sorrow point. And so we turn and we run or we walk away from dealing with the confrontation because we don't want the sorrow. And yet it's necessary to, to, to that the godly grief on the part of those who have sinned should take place. Until that happens, no genuine joy can take place, bottom line. So sorrow without regret is part of it. And then look at verse 9. And this is kind of the, the mechanics of how, how we get from point A to point B, because the godly grief is producing what? Repentance. It brings you to repentance. And Paul's going to describe what repentance is all about. But look what it says there. I rejoice not because you were grieved, because you, but because you were grieved into repentance. If you, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss from us. We have the same pattern here. Godly grief leads to no loss. Now there's a couple things here that that we could talk about. Number one, let's return to the the discipline matter. If you and your discipline, um, in fact, I'm going to refer to Julian's uh, vows to the kids yesterday. When he promised that he would do his best not to exas- exasperate them. You know, if, if, you, if we discipline in our own strength by our own wisdom with our own anger or anything else, we're going to exasperate others and we're going to actually make matters worse, are we not? Even if we get them to the point of, of saying, all right, fine, I did wrong, is the restoration of that relationship complete? No, it isn't. So Paul, so on the one hand, there's a, there's a design to bring about a godly grief, not one that you are imposing upon someone because in your anger, because if you're offended, because of your hurt pride is the, as uh, the one who's been offended, that you're going to sock it to them and make sure that they know how, you know how right you are and how wrong they are. It's not going to... You might be absolutely right, and they might be absolutely wrong, but approaching it with that attitude is not going to help matters at all you're going to create more issues. Paul said the the work through the word and the discipline that was there brought about a godly response on their part so that when they grieved, they weren't just responding to Paul, though there was fruit of their response to Paul as a result of this, they actually responded to the Lord and and turned away, desired to turn away from their wickedness. And when they did that, the grief, therefore, that they felt they had to go through didn't cause them loss, didn't hurt them. In fact, it helped them, But discipline that does not lead to godly grief for whatever reason just does more harm than good. The focus here is upon the Corinthians having a proper response to the discipline, and so uh, in this case Paul is rejoicing because they did not suffer loss, they repented before God, and so Restoration could truly take place. Now, here's the heart of this in uh, verse 11. There is a lot packed into verse 11 here. This is, uh, for those of you who are language nerds, you're going to love this because this is not something that you see in the English translation so much. When you dig into the original language, you see some stuff here that just makes this thing explode. When you look at this, uh, you, you see this list of, of, of reactions that they had uh, to the discipline, right? Uh, but it, we tend to look at it as just, uh, just a list, and here's a bunch of things, and this is characteristic of what you did. But that's not what Paul is doing here. This is all connected, and its order is important. He starts off in verse 11. Okay, so the salvation without regret... The evidence of that, how does he know that that's the case? Look at the earnestness, he says, or you could say eagerness, that this godly grief has produced in you. What what is the nature of this godly grief? What am I putting my confidence in, Paul is saying here? I'm putting it in the fact that I'm seeing the evidence of genuine repentance in your heart and life. And because of that, I know that the discipline that was done, as hard as it was, that caused grief for a time, has brought you out of darkness into light, that has caused you to despise your sin, and caused you to uh, uh, delight in what God delights in. And now we can have more than just a ceasefire in this relationship, but our joy and our union can all be restored, because godly discipline has taken place on the one hand, and godly grief or godly repentance has taken place on the other. Those two things are the components of a well-founded confidence in each other. Now take a look at this. What you won't see in the English is the repetition of a word that in Greek, if we were to spell it in English, it would be A-L-L-A, Allah. Not the name of the God. It's the word in Greek that means but. A conjunction, but. Simple little word. But in this construction of Allah, what it means is, uh, it's, it's a very flexible word. In this kind of construction, it's saying, but even more than that. Even more than that. And it's repeated over and over and over again, you don't see it in the English. It says what this, what that, what the other. But every time you have the what in there, understand that the word Allah is there. And this, then, if you look at the progression, and we're gonna, we're, I, I want you to see the progression, and then we'll go back and look at the components. So from verse eleven, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. It says, but there but unfortunately, um, it, it looks like a contradiction uh, or something else, but instead of saying but also, it be, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, so that you are eager to clear yourselves. Even more than that, you're indignant. Even more than that, your, your fear or in reverence even more than that, longing in your hearts. Even more than that, zeal. Even more than that, punishment. That's what's going on behind the scenes there. It is, Paul is not just stringing out a random bunch of words. But he's pointing out the progression of genuine repentance that needs to be there in order for these relationships to, to be healed. And that is what has taken place. So we have eagerness to clear yourselves there at the beginning. So what does repentance look like? Well, Paul is starting it off here. Paul is starting it off here with uh, uh, their desire to clear their name. Mutual aid call. It's going out right now, so hopefully not personal harm, but only property. Um, there's a desire to clear their name. Now think about it. When you have wronged someone, or it's at least someone thinks you've wronged them, where do, you, where do we always start? Do we not want to start with clearing our name? Right? And that's an appropriate thing to do. uh, You know, a good name is a precious treasure, right? Unfortunately, though, clearing your name is often the only step that anybody wants to do. Do you ever think about that? I just want people to think well of me. And so I'm going to do what I need to do so that they will think well of me. Now... Okay, maybe you end up doing some good things. Even, you know, um, maybe you broke something, so you pay for it, or you know, go and say you're sorry, or blah 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 blah. Whatever it might be, just so that they'll think well of you again. Well, that's a good start. But as you can see here, there are five other things that are involved in repentance that Paul reveals here. Starting with clearing your name, that's a good that's a good foundation. Say, all right, let's clear the decks. I want to make this right. I, I, in order for me to talk to you, I, you're going to have to want to talk to me, so let's do what I can to get at least on the, uh, enough of a footing so that we can have a conversation. Yes, by all means, be, be eager to clear your name for the sake of your testimony and the sake of the testimony of Jesus Christ. But even more than that, indignation over sin. Don't just, want to get, don't just work to get your name cleared, but still love the sin that you did, or at least not think it's very bad. You that love the Lord hate evil. So ev- evidence of genuine repentance should be a hatred of the sin that caused the division, that caused the hurt, that caused the harm. But even more than hating your sin, just because of, and there's lots of reasons to hate sin, Damage relationships, the hurt that it causes, the loss that it causes, all those practical things on a human level. But Paul says it's not just about the, the immediate hurt and consequences of that sin. There should also be fear, even more than hating sin because of its practical ramifications. Hate sin even more because you fear a holy God. You're walking in reverence before the God whom ultimately is the one you've offended more than anybody else by your sin. A reverence for your God must be there. And and, and that's pretty incredible, but even more than that, Paul says, long to be restored. Yes, by all means, work to clear your name. By all means, Hate your sin. Revere your, your holy God. Long to be restored to Him and to uh, those whom you have offended. This is what repentance is all about. Not just saying, I'm sorry. It means a real change of heart. A real change of heart that, that goes beyond just trying to protect yourself. And even more than yearning for restoration... It's great, right, to be restored. If you've if you've ever walked at odds with someone, you've had an argument, or you've had a, a major offense back and forth. It's sweet when that's restored, right? When you're when that point of contention is done away with. But that re- that that relationship can be damaged again, can it not? It's easy enough to sin again, because that's. Our fallen nature is prone to that. So even more than yearning for, for uh, uh, restoration, even more than that, be filled with zeal. And zeal for what? Zeal for holiness. Zeal for genuine walking consistently in righteousness towards one another. To minimize the tendency to slip back into offending each other again. No, other it's really talking about a change of life. Of being aware that, you know, how did I walk in such a way that took me to that place where I did or I said that thing? I need to change my way of life so that that tendency no longer is there. I need to, and I need to zealously pursue that. Not just, well, hopefully I won't do that again. But even more than that zeal, and this one is the kicker, Punishment, punishment, and I thought about that for a minute. I thought, what? Once I saw the, the the construction, the grammar, I was like, okay, I see where this is going. But at first, I was looking at it, going, punishment? What? Is he is he just saying I'm really happy that you beat up on the guy who was you know, who was sinning? No, I don't think he's saying that at all. In the context of what he's said here about a delight and wanting to clear your name and hate your sin and revere your God and, and be restored to others and to, and to change your life so that your life is patterned by holiness and righteousness and peace between one another. When you sin, what is the thing that you dread the most? Most people, anyway. The punishment. Anybody here like consequences? I don't. Okay. Bad consequences. Negative consequences. Consequences that cause you pain. Let's go back to the godly grief. Right? We don't want to go to the grief part. Even if it's godly. It's uncomfortable. We don't like it. But Paul says that genuine repentance, as demonstrated by the Corinthians, It's not only all those other wonderful things about clearing your name and loving God and loving each other and being restored and being holy, and isn't that wonderful? It also means that they had an eagerness. And remember, it started off about eagerness and earnestness. They had an eager willingness and receiving of the consequences of their actions. That goes with the territory. And if someone doesn't want to wants to only wants to avoid the consequences when they're confronted with sin, they can talk about being repentant all they want, but it's a lie. At least to an extent. It's not full. Consequences might be a lack of trust that has to be rebuilt. It might be some financial repayment. It might be any number of other things that come about because of our sin. Sin blasts holes in relationships, and it can take time to fill those holes back in. But, if so be it, the consequences are there, we accept them and move forward with them, with earnestness, as part of, of, the, of the package of what it means to be truly repentant. Because that kind of godly sorrow, and I'm not saying that you walk through punishment going, oh, isn't this great? I just love these consequences. No. It's sorrowful, but it's a godly grief that leads you to no grief, because the relationships can be absolutely restored with full confidence. And Paul, over and over again, says that here, and indeed ends this section, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. He could not have said that had had the discipline not taken place or had their full repentance not taken place. Again, restoring relationships damaged by sin doesn't happen by just sweeping offenses under the rug. Godly discipline, at whatever level, whether it's individual or corporate, that confronts sin while at the same time showing faithful love to the sinner and produces godly grief, is the only way to truly clear the way to restoring a confident, comforting relationship with others. We spoke about this last week in context of our salvation, how the Lord Jesus took upon himself that our punishment as God confronted sin on our behalf through him. But that had to take place. That Discipline had to take place, and he calls us to repentance, does he not, if we are to walk rightly with him. So much is dependent as well upon genuine, full repentance on the part of the offender. And when you're on the confronting end of things, be sure that your discipline is characterized by godliness in every respect, When you are the offender, make sure that your repentance is not artificial, but is a truly godly sorrow from start to finish. Repentance like that is God's gift. So pray for it. Only then can you be confident in your relationships with God and with others. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord that you call us to repentance and faith. When we look at the the list here and what's involved in this repentance, we know that we can't do it. So we thank you that you grant it to us. Lord, when we sin against you and against others, help us to repent in this way. And when we confront others, Lord, help us to, to do so in a godly manner that brings about as much as lies within us, uh, it brings about a a genuine godly grief that doesn't just have a knee-jerk reaction to our methodology, but that truly uh, you use to bring about a heart change, a life change in those that have offended. Lord, I pray that you would walk with us as a church body and in our families to, to be one with each other, united with each other, And Lord, when we sin against each other, as we will, help us to walk with forgiveness and joy and repentance towards one another so that our relationships, our confidence in our relationships will be well-founded, not just well-wished. We pray these things in...